an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Natural theology, I maintain, can only properly be grounded in the philosophy of nature and not in natural science. I need immediately to qualify this opening statement in several ways. First, I'm speaking specifically of arguments in natural theology that purport to arrive at the existence and nature of God a posteriori. The ontological argument attempts to do so a priori, and I am, of course, not claiming that that argument should be grounded in the philosophy of nature, a suggestion which would be unintelligible given the nature of that argument. I am saying that any argument that successfully reasons from the world to God must be grounded in premises derived from the philosophy of nature rather than from natural science. Second, I don't mean to deny that natural theology itself is a kind of science. On the contrary, I think theology is the highest science in the Aristotelian sense of science. For that matter, in the Aristotelian sense, philosophy of nature itself constitutes a science. But neither natural theology nor philosophy of nature is a science in the modern sense of the term, the sense in which physics, chemistry, and biology are regarded as sciences. So, I am claiming that natural theology cannot properly be grounded in sciences like physics, chemistry, or biology as those are typically understood today. Rather, it must be grounded in that more fundamental discipline which studies the metaphysical preconditions of any possible physics, chemistry, or biology, and that is precisely what the philosophy of nature is concerned with, at least using metaphysics in the sense uh, contemporary analytic philosophers tend to use it. Third, when I say that natural theology must be grounded in the philosophy of nature, what I mean then is that we are not going to be able successfully to reason from the world to God unless we deal with the most basic philosophical questions about the nature of change, causation, material substance, and the like. But I will also be arguing that we need to defend the specific answers to those questions developed within the broadly Aristotelian scholastic tradition, a tradition often falsely supposed to have been overthrown by modern science, but which I maintain, in fact, best accounts for the very possibility of there being an empirical world for natural science to study in the first place. Fourth, when I say that we cannot get from the world to God except via premises derived from the philosophy of nature, I have a quite specific conception of God in mind. I do not deny that conclusions of a sort that might in some sense of the term be called theological might be derived from natural science. But I do deny that arguments grounded in natural science alone can get you to classical theism. That is, to the conception of God defended by Athanasius and Augustine, Avicenna and Maimonides, Anselm and Aquinas, and enshrined in Orthodox Catholic theology as expressed by the Fourth Lateran Council and the First Vatican Council. If anything, they have a tendency to lead you away from the God of classical theism. You might get to a demiurge, to a being of superhuman intelligence and power with arguments grounded in physics, chemistry, or biology alone, but what you cannot get to is that which is ipsum esse subsistence rather than merely a being among other beings, to a sustaining cause on whom the very being of the world depends at every instant, or to that which is absolutely simple or in no way composed of parts, whether, whether physical or metaphysical. One implication of this is that design arguments of the sort associated with William Paley and contemporary uh, intelligent design theory are at best irrelevant to natural theology, as that discipline is understood in the classical theist tradition, and at worst threatens seriously to distort our understanding of God and his relationship to the world, again, at least, as, at least from the point of view of classical theism. Having made these qualifications, I doubt I've made my opening statement much less controversial. I've also no doubt raised as many questions as I've answered. Further, to explain my meaning and to justify my claims, it will be best to begin at the beginning, at the beginning of the history of natural theology, the beginning of natural science, and the beginning of the philosophy of nature. And as it happens, they all have the same beginning in ancient Greece with the pre-Socratics.
And in honor of Thales, I'll have a little water at this point. <laughs> I just thought of that, isn't that <laughs> The pre-Socratic philosophers were famously con concerned to discover a principle that might account for the unity and permanence they took to underlie the change and multiplicity in the world of our experience. Uh, some thought they found it in a purely meta, uh, material principle for Thales, water, for Anaximenes, air, for Leucippus and Democritus, atoms. Heraclitus came as close as one can get to denying that there is really any unity or permanence to the world in the first place. For him, all is flux, and the conflict between the ever-shifting elements of the world of our experience is itself the only unchanging reality. Parmenides and Zeno went to the opposite extreme of denying the reality of change and multiplicity. For these Eleatic thinkers, there is and can be no becoming but only being, static and undifferentiated. Change, Par Parmenides argued, would have to involve being arising from non-being, something coming from nothing, but from nothing, nothing can come. Hence, there can be no change. Aristotle identified the error in Parmenides' reasoning. When an ice cream cone melts in the sun, what we have is not a transition to being from sheer non-being or nothingness. What we have is rather the actualization of a potential that was already present in the ice cream. For in addition to the ways in which the ice cream uh, cone actually is, cold, sweet, solid, and so forth, and the ways it absolutely is not, it is not made of granite, it is not an octopus, there are the ways it potentially could be, melted, for example, or digested. For Aristotle, potentialities are real features of things alongside the ways in which they are actual, and that is why things are capable of changing. Potentialities constitute a middle ground between the two options Parmenides, uh, Parmenides affords us in his false dichotomy between fully actualized being and sheer non-being or, non or nothingness. Now, the distinction between actuality and potentiality, or act and potency, to use the more traditional jargon, is the foundation of Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature. It is implicit in the hylomorphic analysis of natural substances as composites of substantial form and prime matter. For matter is, on the Aristotelian analysis, just the potency or potential to take on form and make of it something individual and concrete rather than a mere abstraction. And form is that which actualizes otherwise indeterminate matter and thereby makes of it a substance. The theory of act and potency is also closely tied to the Aristotelian understanding of final causes as imminent to the natural order, built into matter itself. For a potency or potential is always a potential for being actualized in some way. Potencies are thereby directed toward or point to their actualizations as to an end or goal. For example, the ice cream points to being melted as one possible future state. In this way, <coughs> efficient causation, generating something, bringing it into being, uh, is for the Aristotelian scholastic tradition unintelligible without final causation. An efficient cause, a match, say, generates its typical effect or effects, such as flame and heat, precisely because by virtue of its potencies, it is directed toward the generation of those effects as toward an end or goal. The phosphorus in the match head is directed at or points to the generation of flame and heat specifically, rather than to the generation of frost or the smell of lilacs. It is flame and heat that the match will generate if struck, unless prevented from doing so by water damage, say. And it is flame and heat that it would have generated, even if it is never, in fact, struck, but kept in a drawer until it turns to dust. And the phosphorus has those specific potencies precisely because of its substantial form. Act and potency, efficient cause, final cause, uh, substantial form, prime matter, all of these concepts are tightly interconnected, and all are, in the Aristotelian scholastic view, necessary 
for making sense of the very possibility of a world of changing and causally interrelated natural substances. To this Aristotelian picture, the Thomistic tradition added the distinction between essence and existence, which is also rooted in the distinction between act and potency. For a thing to be real is for its nature or essence to be conjoined with an act of existence. Hence, the tree in my backyard is real because to the essence or nature of being a tree, there is conjoined an act of existence. While phoenixes are not real, because to the nature or essence of being a phoenix, if there is such a nature or essence, there is conjoined no act of existence. But for a thing's essence to be conjoined to an act of existence is for it to go from potentiality to actuality. For an essence or nature is merely potential until an act of existence actualizes it. This is true even of immaterial, finite substances uh, such as angels. Now, that they are composites of actuality and potentiality entails in the mature Aristotelian scholastic tradition that no finite substance, whether material or immaterial, can in principle exist even for an instant on its own without a divine sustaining cause. That is to say, no finite substance has what has sometimes been called existential inertia, the inherent tendency to remain in being. Uh, this is a theme I've elaborated upon at length elsewhere. Uh, in a recent uh, article, American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly, but the basic idea can be briefly stated. Confining ourselves for present purposes to the case of material substances, putting aside uh, angels and the like uh, for the moment, an argument for the claim that no such substance, no material substance can have existential inertia, can exist even for an instant on its own without uh, an external divine sustaining cause, begins with a familiar principle of scholastic metaphysics, and this brings us to the little handout here where I sketch this argument out in nine steps. Uh, first step is that a cause cannot give what it does not have to give. I can't, get you, I can't give you what I don't have myself. And in general, uh, a cause can't give what it does not in some way or other uh, possess itself. There are different ways it could possess it, uh, formally or uh, virtually, uh, say. Uh, and the scholastics make all sorts of distinctions. But um, that's the basic principle. A cause cannot give what it does not have to give. Now, step two, a material substance is a composite of prime matter and substantial form. Those are its inherent principles. Um, step three, something has existential inertia if and only if it has of itself a tendency to persist in existence once it exists, to carry on on, on its own steam, as it were. Step four, but prime matter by itself and apart from substantial form is pure potency, pure potentiality and has of itself no tendency to persist in existence because by itself it's mere potentiality, it's not actual. Step five, in the substantial form of a material thing, by itself and apart from prime matter, is a mere abstraction uh, and thus of itself also has no tendency to persist in existence. It's merely an abstraction until uh, it, it informs prime matter to make it a, a concrete substance. So step six, neither prime matter as the material cause of material substance nor substantial form as its formal cause can impart to the material substance that they compose a tendency to persist in existence. But step seven, there are no other internal principles from which a substance might derive such a tendency. And so step eight, no material substance has a tendency of itself to persist in existence once it exists. And therefore step nine, no material substance has existential inertia. Okay, now, uh, a lot more could be said about that. I say a lot more about it in this recent article I referred to, but the point here is just to give a sense of how uh, one of the implications of the act-potency distinction when it's fleshed out in terms of 
form and matter and, and essence and existence and so forth, is that the things of the world of our experience, the material things of the world that studied by science, known by common sense, has, cannot have of its nature any built-in tendency to carry on for an instant without an external sustaining cause. It'd be a very important point for, what's follow, for what follows. Okay. Now, the transition from these key themes in Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature to natural theology should be obvious. For the inherent impossibility of any natural substance is maintaining itself in being, even for an instant, leads inexorably to the existence of God as its sustaining cause. As I've argued at length elsewhere, uh, this is the overall thrust of each of the families of theistic arguments represented by Aquinas' famous five ways, as they have been developed within the Thomistic tradition. Again, I discussed this in the article I referred to, uh, the recent uh, American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly article, and the arguments uh, for God's existence that I referred to, the five ways. I defend several of them in uh, The Last Superstition, and I defend all of them at greater length, and for those offended by polemics um, <laughs> in, a, in a dry academic, well, not that dry, but an academic style in my book Aquinas. So I won't defend those here, but I just uh, refer to those. Um, now, the argument from motion to an unmoved mover is at bottom an argument to the effect that whatever is a composite of act and potency must be actualized by that which just is pure actuality with no admixture of potentiality. The argument for an uncaused cause is at bottom an argument to the effect that whatever is a composite of essence and existence must be caused to exist by something whose essence and existence are identical, something which just is subsistent being itself. And I argue that uh, properly understood or properly developed as they have been in the later Thomistic tradition, these are arguments for God as a sustaining cause of the world. Uh, not merely uh, a cause who gets the ball rolling. Uh, arguing for God as a sustaining cause of the world and proving the existence of God at all are really one and the same thing in the Thomistic tradition. They're not separate questions. And again, I defend that claim elsewhere. More generally, whatever is composite in any respect must have its source in that which is absolutely simple or non-composite, and so forth for the other uh, of the classic arguments for God's existence as enshrined in the five ways. Now, these arguments lead precisely to the conception of God and his relationship to the world that is enshrined in classical theism, when uh, fully developed anyway. For example, they entail the doctrine of divine conservation, according to which the world could not continue in existence for an instant apart from God's conserving action, a doctrine that is clearly taught in scripture, that has been affirmed by such doctors of the church as Augustine, Gregory the Great, and Aquinas, that is taught by the Roman Catechism and is arguably implicit in the teaching of the First Vatican Council. They entail the doctrine of divine simplicity, which was explicitly taught by Vatican I and by the Fourth Lateran Council, and is the common teaching of the great theologians, not only of the Catholic tradition, but also within Judaism and Islam. They entail the doctrine of divine immutability and eternity, which, like the doctrine of divine simplicity, are de fide doctrines of the Catholic Church and the common teaching of the classical theologians. These doctrines follow from God's being pure actuality rather than a mixture of actuality and potentiality. What is composed of parts of any sort is a mixture of potentiality and actuality insofar as the whole is only potentially uh, in the parts and needs to be actualized. Hence, God as pure actuality cannot be composed of parts. What is changeable or temporal passes from potenti potentiality to actuality. Hence, God as pure actuality cannot be changeable or temporal and so forth. Excuse me. <clears throat> In short, uh, the theory of act and potency, which is the core of the Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature, when fully developed, 
leads us to a conception of the world as utterly dependent on God at every instant, but also to a conception of God as utterly distinct from the world, since, unlike the world, he is simple, immutable, and eternal. It thereby not only refutes atheism, but rules out both deism and pantheism, views which Christian orthodoxy requires us to condemn in any event. It gives us the foundation, then, for a sound natural theology, uh, again, certainly from the point of view of classical theism, anyway. Now, am I insinuating that to abandon the Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature and in particular the theory of act and potency, would be to undermine natural theology, at least if we understand natural theology to be in the business of arguing from the world to the god of classical theism? Am I insinuating that abandoning it would threaten to open the door to pantheism, deism, or a even atheism? That is exactly what I'm insinuating. <laughs> I'm asserting it, I'm not insinuating. And here's one reason to think that I am right. These dire consequences are exactly what followed when the Aristotelian scholastic tradition lost its hegemony in Western thought. Now this brings us to the rise of natural science, modern natural science. If the philosophy of nature and natural theology reached their high point with Thomas Aquinas, this third of the disciplines we are concerned with, natural science, had to wait until the scientific revolution. And of course, the scientific revolution had something to do with the Aristotelian scholastic tradition losing its hold over the Western mind, but not in the way commonly supposed. Modern science has indeed falsified certain empirical scientific theses that had been associated with the Aristotelian scholastic tradition. Geocentrism, the ancient theory of the elements, the idea that material objects have specific places to which they naturally move, and so forth. Aristotelian scholastic arguments in the philosophy of nature and natural theology had often been stated in terms of these now superseded scientific ideas. But the metaphysical and theological claims can be disentangled from the false scientific claims and were so disentangled by later scholastic thinkers. Thus, that the scientific revolution put paid to Aristotelian scholastic physics does not entail that it put paid to Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature and natural theology, and in fact, it did not do so. The reason many suppose otherwise is that they fail to keep in mind that the scientific revolution was not merely a revolution in science. It was also a philosophical revolution, and the latter revolution has inherited the prestige of the former. As uh, uh, the philosopher Hilary Putnam in his book Renewing Philosophy has written, quote, for the last three centuries, a certain metaphysical picture suggested by Newtonian or Galilean physics has been repeatedly confused with physics itself. Philosophers who love that picture do not have very much incentive to point out the confusion. If a philosophical picture is taken to be the picture endorsed by science, then attacks on the picture will seem to be attacks on science, and few philosophers will wish to be seen as enemies of science, unquote. What this revolutionary metaphysical picture involved was, of course, an overthrow of the Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature. The theory of act and potency, imminent final causes or teleology built into the natural world, uh, not imposed from outside or not merely imposed from outside the way a watchmaker imposes a time-telling function on bits of metal, say, but in some way built into the nature of things on the model of, a, of an organic substance, for example. That idea is thrown out the window. Substantial form and prime matter, all tossed out. In their place was put a new description of the natural world in essentially mathematical and non-teleological terms. No longer were material things to be understood as possessed of potentialities or potencies by virtue of which they were inherently directed toward the generation of certain effects. Rather, they were to be understood as inherently inert but related by mathematically expressible laws. Why does the cause A generate its typical effect B? A scholastic would say that A does so because given its nature or substantial form, 
A inherently points to the generation of B specifically as to a final cause. Now, obviously, you have to say a lot more than that to give us an interesting scientific account, but the point is whatever else, whatever the empirical details turn out to be, that's the metaphysical underpinning on the scholastic view. Okay, so given its nature of substantial form, A inherently points to the generation of B as to a final cause. The new philosophy of nature of the moderns denies this. It says that there is no inherent link between A and B at all, that neither A nor anything else in the natural world points to anything beyond itself. Rather, it is just a, quote, law of nature that A's tend to be followed by B's, where this law is, as it were, imposed from outside. A and B could, in theory, have been related by a very different law or by no law at all. For A, B, and every other element of the world are, as Hume would put it, entirely, quote, loose and separate. <clears throat> Hence, whereas natural phenomena were modeled on organic substances in the Aristotelian scholastic tradition, the moderns modeled them instead on machines or artifacts. The parts of a plant, say, on the, you know, uh, the, the Aristotelian tradition, have an inherent or built-in tendency to function together for the sake of the whole. <clears throat> Roots have an inherent tendency, uh, just by virtue of being part of a tree to sink into the ground and to draw water and nutrients into the body of the plant. Leaves have an inherent tendency toward photosynthesis and so forth. Moreover, the parts only count as the kinds of things they are relative to the whole. A root just is that part of a plant that anchors it to the ground and takes in water and nutrients. And a leaf just is that part of a plant which carries out photosynthesis and thereby produces food for the plant, to add details that obviously came later than the, than the uh, scholastic tradition that the moderns overthrew. Uh, they just would not be the kinds of things they are apart from their relations to the plant of which they are parts. By contrast, the parts of a watch have no inherent tendency to function together so as to measure time. That function is imposed on them from outside. Accordingly, the parts could in principle have been related instead for the realization of some other end. Now, all natural substances, including inorganic ones, are for the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition like the plant in having inherent or built-in teleology and causal tendencies. For the moderns, however, all natural substances, including plants, are to be thought of on the model of the watch. They are machine-like in having no inherent tendency toward an end. And that's the part of the machine analogy that Aristotelians and Thomists don't like. Obviously, living things have parts and machines have parts, so they're comparable in that way. Okay, that's fine, but, but uh, the difference that makes a difference is that uh, a machine has parts that have no inherent tendency toward, say, a time-telling function or a computing function in the case of a computer or what have you. Um, okay, so for the moderns, all natural substances, including plants, are to be thought of on the model of the watch. They are machine-like and having no inherent tendency toward an end. Such an end might be imposed from outside by a divine machinist, but there is no imminent or intrinsic tendency towards it. For this reason, the moderns new anti-Aristotelian philosophy of nature has been called mechanistic. Of course, there were aspects of the original mechanical philosophy, as it was known in the 17th century, that have not survived. Corpuscularianism, a crude push-pull model of causation, and so forth. But what has survived is the idea that there is no teleology or final causality imminent or inherent to the natural order, um, and an insistence on pushing an exclusively mathematical description of nature as far as it can go. Needless to say, this method has had dramatic predictive and technological successes, precisely, I would say, because it deliberately focuses exclusively on those aspects of nature which can be predicted and controlled. If that's all you're looking for, it's no surprise that's all you're going to find. Uh, and conceived of merely as a method, or a method devoted to certain specific ends, it is unobjectionable. 
But from the time of the scientific revolution onward, boosters of science have tended to regard it as a metaphysics, no less than a method, as a description, indeed an exhaustive description, of the real nature of natural phenomena. And they have insinuated quite fallaciously that the successes of modern science have vindicated it as a metaphysics. There are many problems with this position, but the one I'm concerned with here is theological. And that is that from the essentially mathematical and non-teleological description of the material world that you get from natural science, you're not going to reason your way one inch closer to the god of classical theism. Indeed, if you treat this description, even if only for the sake of argument, as if it were a complete metaphysical description of nature, then you are, you are if anything, going to get away from the god of classical theism. It is no accident that that's exactly what happened in the history of Western thought after the scientific revolution. The theological pendulum swung away from classical theism, first toward the occasionalism of Descartes and Malebranche and the pantheism of Spinoza, and then in the direction of deism, until deism finally gave way to atheism. Now why? Uh, and this brings us to all, uh, to of all people in a, in a talk given by a Thomist, uh, Bishop Barclay. Barclay was one early modern philosopher who clearly perceived the theological dangers in the new conception of matter. As he warns us in the three dialogues, quote, matter or material substance are terms introduced by philosophers and as used by them imply a sort of independency or a subsistence distinct from being perceived by a mind. There is not perhaps any one thing that hath more favored and strengthened the depraved bent of the mind toward atheism than the use of that general confused term, unquote. And again he says, same work, quote, but allowing matter to exist and the notion of absolute existence to be as clear as light, yet, this was, uh, yet was this ever known to make the creation more credible? Nay, hath it not furnished the atheists and infidels of all ages with the most plausible argument against a creation? That a corporeal substance which hath an absolute existence without the minds of spirits should be produced out of nothing by the mere will of a spirit hath been looked upon as a thing so contrary to all reason, so impossible and absurd, that not only the most celebrated among the ancients, but even diverse modern and Christian philosophers have thought matter co-eternal with the deity." Unquote. Now, of course, Barclay was an idealist, and he objected to the notion of matter as such, not merely to the modern conception of matter. Nevertheless, his immediate target was the notion of matter as he found it in Locke and Newton. And there is a sense in which even the staunchest Aristotelian scholastic realist must agree that Barclay was correct to object to the suggestion that matter, that matter might exist apart from all minds, including the divine intellect. For as I have emphasized, for the scholastic, the material world could not persist for an instant were God not continually causing it to exist. And on the doctrine of divine simplicity, God's causing the world and God's knowing the world are really one and the same thing, considered from different points of view. Hence, to say that matter might in principle exist from, uh, apart from God's thinking about it would implicitly be to say that matter might in principle exist without God's continually causing it to exist. As the analytical Thomist John Haldane has put the point, quote, as Aquinas reminds us, rather than God's knowing being logically posterior to its objects, it is the creative cause of them. God knows reality as a writer knows his narrative, not by being an attentive reader, but by being a deliberative author, to harken back to something uh, Steve Barr said last night. In that sense, <coughs> excuse me, in that sense, Haldane says, quote, Barclay was correct, to be is to be known by God, unquote. <coughs> but does the, <coughs> excuse me, does the modern mechanistic conception of matter really imply that matter could exist even apart from God's conserving action? It does indeed. 
or at least it's hard to see how it can avoid that implication <coughs> if mechanism is interpreted as a metaphysics rather than merely as a method. <coughs> Excuse me. Barclay was clear that what he objected to was not the suggestion that matter might exist apart from some mind or other, but that matter had what he called an absolute subsistence or an absolute existence apart even from the divine intellect. And you don't have to be a Barclayan idealist to see the modern conception of matter entails that it has such an absolute subsistence. For recall what I said earlier about the reason why material things do not, on the Aristotelian scholastic view, possess existential inertia, do not have the capacity to remain in being on their own. The reason is that they're mixtures of act and potency, actuality and potentiality. Matter all by itself is just pure potentiality with no actuality at all by itself. While the substantial forms of material things are mere abstractions apart from matter with no concrete existence. More generally, an essence is purely potential and not at all actual apart from an active existence. While an active existence is a mere abstraction apart from a nature or essence that it actualizes. Matter and form, essence and existence in a concrete material thing are thus interdependent. To avoid vicious ontological circularity then, there must be something outside a material thing that combines and keeps combined its metaphysical components if it is to exist even for an instant. Okay, given all the act potency stuff, that's the case anyway. <coughs> but <coughs> what happens when we deny, as the moderns did, that material things have any imminent or built-in final causality? What happens when we deny that they are mixtures of act and potency? <clears throat> something we have to deny if we deny that they have imminent final causality since, as we noted earlier, potency or potentiality goes hand in hand with imminent finality. You get rid of built-in finality, you get, to, you get rid of built-in potency as well. They go hand in hand. What happens is that we return to something like Parmenides' position, or rather we return to what the Greek atomists made of Parmenides' position. For the ancient atomists held that the atoms corresponded to Parmenides' notion of being and thus never come into existence or go out of existence. But it also follows that they not only have no beginning, but exist absolutely and independently of anything else here and now. For that is what one has to say of a thing if one denies it is a mixture of act and potency. If there is no Aristotelian middle ground of potency or potentiality between Parmenides' dichotomy between full actuality and sheer non-being or nothingness, then the only way for matter at the most fundamental level to exist, if it exists at all, is in a fully actual way, without the need to be made actual by anything else. That's essentially what the ancient atomists said about the atoms, and it is what the moderns implicitly committed, them, committed themselves to when they rejected the Aristotelian distinction between act and potency. As the historian of philosophy, Denis Deschenes, has written of Descartes' version of mechanism, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, quote, the directedness of natural change and with it the contrast between potential and actual are banished in the Cartesian restriction of natural properties to figure, size, and motion. Cartesian matter, and I would add uh, the modern conception of matter, mechanical conception of matter in the sense in which I've defined it. Cartesian matter is, from the Aristotelian standpoint, at every instant entirely actual, unquote. Hence, while the everyday material objects of our experience may come and go, the basic material stuff of which they are made, implicitly anyway, becomes on the modern picture something that which has what Barclay called an absolute subsistence, even apart from God. It just is actual, has no need to be actualized because there's no real potentiality in matter anymore because there's no imminent finality. You get rid of imminent finality, you get rid of potency, you thereby get rid of a world that requires God to sustain it in being. The world becomes independent in principle of God. 
One can avoid this result only if one denies that the modern conception of matter really does give us the whole metaphysical truth about matter after all. Point isn't that science tells us necessarily something false about matter. The question is, does it give us the whole story? Um, so one can avoid this result only if one denies that the modern conception really does give us the whole metaphysical truth about matter after all. And some who have no theological axe to grind would admit that it does not. As Bertrand Russell once wrote in his uh, book, uh, My Philosophical Development, quote, it is not always realized how exceedingly abstract is the information that theoretical physics has to give. It lays down certain fundamental equations which enable it to deal with the logical structure of events while leaving it completely unknown what is the intrinsic character of the events that have that structure. We only know the intrinsic character of events when they happen to us. Nothing whatever in theoretical physics enables us to say anything about the intrinsic character of events elsewhere. They may be just like the events that happen to us or they may be totally different in strictly unimaginable ways. All that physics gives us is certain equations giving abstract properties of their changes. But as to what it is that changes and what it changes from and to, as to this, physics is silent." Unquote. Now this, I would say, is essentially correct. My qualifications here there, but essentially correct. But merely acknowledging that physics gives us only the mathematical structure of the material world rather than its intrinsic nature doesn't really solve the problem raised by Berkeley. The problem that modern science, that is to say, gives us a conception of matter which at least allows for the possibility that it might exist apart from God. As James Collins glosses Berkeley's concern in his book God and Modern Philosophy, quote, since the nature of this material substance remains unknowable, we have no way of showing that it has a real relation of causal dependence on God any more than that it has a noetic relation of accessibility to our mind. Grant the reality of matter so defined and there is no way to overcome the skeptical doubt uh, or to offer demonstrative proof of the causal dependence of the sensible world on a first cause." Unquote. Now, as Collins goes on to point out, avoiding this problem hardly necessitates following Berkeley in the direction of idealism. Again, to quote from Collins, alternative ways were open for Berkeley to deal with this issue. He might have challenged the accepted definition of matter and proposed one that would allow jointly for the reality of matter, its knowability by the human mind, and its causal dependence upon God. To follow this route, however, Berkeley would have had to repudiate the Cartesian and Lockean assumption about the immediate object of the understanding, and this he was not prepared to do." Unquote. Uh, though he saw the theological dangers inherent in the modern conception of matter then, Berkeley was still himself committed to the modern philosophical project and had no intention of returning to the scholasticism that would have given him just the conception of matter that Collins describes, but which he followed Descartes and Locke in repudiating. He chose then to propose a novel idealist account of God's relationship to the world. Unless we're willing to follow Berkeley's idealism then, a route that few would take and which is certainly philosophically and theologically problematic, we need to find some realist solution to the problem he raises, a solution that both affirms the existence of matter and makes it intelligible how the material world must depend on God for its continuance in existence from moment to moment. I submit that there is no way to accomplish this without going beyond the purely mathematical description of the material world physics gives us and addressing the questions in the philosophy of nature that it leaves unanswered. Questions about the intrinsic character of the material world, as uh, Russell put it. And I submit also that there is no way to accomplish it without acknowledging that the intrinsic character includes potency or potentiality as a real constituent, just as the Aristotelian scholastic tradition has always claimed and therefore also imminent final causality, not merely imposed from outside, but built into the, to matter. 
Now, if there is any doubt about this, let me try to dispel it by examining the two main alternative approaches to arguing from the world to the existence of God developed by the moderns. The broadly empiricist approach, most prominently represented by William Paley, and the rationalist approach, most prominently represented by Leibniz. Both are seriously deficient from the point of view of classical theism, and their deficiencies arise precisely from their eschewal of the Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature. Consider first Paley's famous design argument for the existence of God as a kind of cosmic machinist who imposes purposes or teleology on the world from outside, the way a watchmaker imposes a time-telling function on parts that in no way have it intrinsically. Now, it is often acknowledged that Paley's argument gets us at best to a designer who is extremely powerful and intelligent, but who, for all we know, may yet be finite and thus non-divine. But the problem is not just that Paley's designer may be something other than God as classical theism understands him. There is reason to think that Paley's designer could not be God as classical theism understands him. Consider first that for classical theists like Aquinas, when we predicate attributes of God, we necessarily do so analogously rather than univocally. But Paley is evidently predicating attributes to his designer and to us in a univocal way, which for the Thomist at least entails a radically deficient conception of God. Um, a simple example will illustrate the difference between the two kinds of predication. When I say that this is a good cheeseburger and that that is good pizza, I am using good univocally. I'm predicating the very same thing to both the cheeseburger and the pizza, and I will still be doing so if I say that the cheeseburger is better than the pizza. I will be saying that the pizza and the cheeseburger both have the very same attribute, but that the cheeseburger has it to a higher degree than the pizza. When I say that this is a good cheeseburger and that Aquinas was a good man, I'm not using good univocally, and I am not predicating exactly the same thing both to the cheeseburger and to Aquinas. I'm saying instead that there is something in Aquinas that is analogous to what we call good in the cheeseburger, though of course it is not precisely the same thing, since the moral qualities that lead us to attribute goodness to a human being are not the same as the gustatory and nutritive qualities that lead us to attribute goodness to food. Similarly, when we speak of Aquinas' intelligence and my intelligence, we are using intelligence univocally. Hence, to say that Aquinas was more intelligent than I am uh, is to say that Aquinas had the same thing I have, but to a greater degree. But in Aquinas' view, when we speak of our intelligence and God's intelligence, we are not using intelligence univocally. We are not saying that God is the same thing we have, but to a higher degree. Rather, we are saying that there is in God something analogous to what we call intelligence in us. The reason is that God, as pure actuality, does not merely participate in being goodness, intelligence, and the like, as we and other created things do. For Aquinas, God doesn't have being. He is being itself. He doesn't have goodness. He is goodness itself. He doesn't have intelligence. He is intelligence itself, and so forth. Moreover, he is, given the doctrine of divine simplicity, identical to his attributes. What we call God's being, God's goodness, God's intelligence, and so forth, are really just the same thing, God himself considered from different points of view. It follows that God is radically unlike anything in the created order. He is not a being alongside others, not even a very grand and remote being among other beings, but rather ipsum esse subsistence, that on which all mere beings depend for their being, subsistent being itself. By contrast, Paley's procedure is to model his designer on human designers. By implication, at least, his designer exercises the same faculty human designers do. He works out design problems, he performs calculations and so forth, but does so with massively greater facility. He's really clever. But God is not, God is not clever. He's beyond, he's beyond that, uh, as Thomism understands him, certainly. 
Uh, Paley's designer is an essentially anthropomorphic designer, and as such, it is hard to see how he could be as classical theism says God is, absolutely simple, immutable, eternal, and so forth. So the anthropomorphism implicit in Paley's conception of God is one reason uh, why many classical theists are bound to object to Paley's style of argument. Now, uh, to be sure, there are some classical theists, Scotus, for example, who don't, don't subscribe to Aquinas' doctrine of analogy, and they may be willing to cut Paley some slack on this particular issue. But there are other problems with Paley's argument. In particular, Paley's implied conception of God's relationship to the world is another potential source of incompatibility with classical theism. To see how, consider the three main approaches in the history of theology to understanding God's causal relationship to the world as Alfred Fredoso has usefully classified them. <clears throat> so first, uh, occasionalism holds that God alone is the cause of everything that happens, so that there is no true, there are no true secondary causes in nature. For example, in this view, one billiard ball which makes contact with another during a game of pool does not in any way cause the other to move. Rather, God causes the second ball to move on the occasion when the first makes contact with it. Second view uh, is mere conservationism, as Ferdoso calls it, which holds that while God maintains natural objects and their causal powers in existence at every moment, they alone are the immediate causes of their effects. On this view, the one billiard ball really does cause the other one to move, and God has nothing to do with it other than keeping the ball and its causal powers in being. He is not in any direct way the cause of the second ball's motion. Finally, of the three views, the last of them is concurrentism, which is a middle ground position which holds, on the one hand, and contrary to occasionalism, that natural objects are true causes, but on the other hand, and contrary to mere conservationism, that God not only maintains natural objects and their causal powers and being, but also cooperates with them in immediately causing their effects. On this view, the one billiard ball really does cause the other uh, ball to move, but only together with God, who acts as a concurrent cause. Now, concurrent, concurrentism became the standard view within the scholastic tradition because the other views are philosophically and theologically problematic. For example, occasionalism veers in the direction of pantheism, while mere conservationism veers in the direction of deism. We can understand how he recalled the scholastic dictum that, quote, a thing operates according as it is, unquote. Uh, that's a quote from the uh, Summa Theologiae. If, as occasionalism holds, only God alone ever operates or brings about effects, and natural objects operate not at all, then it is difficult to see how they exist at all, at least in any robust way. God alone would seem to be uh, real. Natural objects would be like mere fictional characters in the mind of a divine author. It's a useful analogy, but it has limits. By contrast, if mere conservationism, uh, if as mere conservationism holds, natural objects can at least operate or bring about effects apart from God's immediate causal action, then it seems they could also exist apart from his immediate causal action, if a thing operates according as it is, to use the scholastic uh, idea. The world would in that case not depend for its continued existence on God's conserving action. Now this is not to say flatly that quote, occasionalism entails pantheism, or that, quote, mere conservationism entails deism, unquote. The issues are complex, and careful analysis is required in order to determine precisely what these views do or do not entail, either by themselves or in conjunction with other assumptions. The point is just to indicate some of the reasons why they have been considered at least problematic. Now, 
<clears throat> I've noted that the Aristotelian scholastic tradition regards efficient causality as intelligible only in the light of final causality. Coming back to why this is relevant to Paley. If the phosphorus in a match head regularly generates flame and heat rather than frost and cold, or the smell of lilacs, or no effect at all, that can only be because the phosphorus is inherently directed toward or points beyond itself to the generation of those specific effects as to an end or goal. So the scholastic would argue. The clear implication would seem to be that if natural objects are to be true causes, they must possess imminent or built-in finality, and not merely the extrinsic or externally imposed finality affirmed by Paley. To deny them imminent finality, to hold that whatever finality they have exists only in the divine intellect in the way that the time-telling function exists in the mind of the designer of a watch, and in no way in the natural objects themselves, imminently, would therefore seem to entail denying natural objects genuine causal power and to attribute all causal power to God alone, and that would be to embrace occasionalism. Insofar as Paley's position presupposes a rejection of imminent finality, then it arguably threatens to collapse into occasionalism. Of course, Paley and other defenders of the design argument would no doubt find this charge surprising. Certainly, they do not typically deny that natural objects are true efficient causes. But the point is that their position at least arguably entails such a denial, whether they realize it or not. If digestion, oxidation, gravitation, and other natural causal processes are as extrinsic to natural phenomena as time-telling is extrinsic to the parts of a watch, then natural phenomena have no more power to carry out these activities than metal gears have the power to convey the time of day. After all, that a particular bit of physical activity means that it is now 11.27 or whatever time it is, is entirely uh, observer relative and does not follow from anything in the watch parts themselves. If we, the designers and users of the watch, who cause the marks on its face to mean, it is we, the designers and users of the watch, uh, who cause the marks on its face uh, to mean what they do. Similarly, if something counts as digestion, oxidation, gravitation, and the like, also entirely extrinsically, only relative to God's activity as a designer, and in no way are those things built into matter itself, then these things too are really God's activities rather than those of natural objects themselves, and we're left with occasionalism. To be sure, some of Paley's other commitments would seem to lead in the opposite direction, in particular that he regards it as at best highly probable that complex natural phenomena were designed by God seems to entail that they could, at least in principle, exist and operate apart from him. But this leads him out of the frying pan of occasionalism only to fall into the fire of deism, bypassing not only concurrentism, but even mere conservationism altogether. And of course, Paley's position is indeed sometimes characterized as reflective of the 18th century trend toward deism. That trend, I would say, was inevitable. The elements comprising the material world, no longer regarded as united organically into substances via substantial forms and imminent final causes, came to seem essentially loose and separate, as again Hume famously put it, having no more inherent unity than the parts of a machine do. Hence, the regularities they did exhibit were reconceived on the model of the regularities that a watch or some other mechanical artifact exhibits when its parts are arranged by an artificer. The, quote, laws of nature, as these regularities came to be described, displacing talk of the natures or substantial forms of things, were just the patterns that the divine artificer had put into the bits of clockwork that make up the world. As a machine can operate in the absence of its maker, though, so too the world came, uh, did the world come to seem something that could operate in the absence of the artificer, at least in principle. And thus did the doctrine of divine conservation give way to deism. And the sequel, naturally, was atheism, once it occurred to mechanists 
that if the machine of the world could operate here and now without a machinist, maybe it always has so operated. Maybe the machine and the laws governing it are all that has ever existed. But the mechanistic anti-Aristotelian view of matter insinuated the ancient atomist view that matter was fully actual and thus without need of a sustaining cause could only serve to grease the skids. <clears throat> so from a classical theistic point of view, Paley's position is bound to appear metaphysically unstable ambiguous between unacceptable extremes vis-a-vis -vis the question of God's causal relationship to the world. And it wavers between these extremes precisely because of its rejection of the Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature. And in particular, its rejection, at least implicitly, of imminent rather than merely extrinsically imposed final causes. That, together with its tendency toward anthropomorphism, makes it doubly objectionable from a theological point of view. It is no surprise then that Thomas have often distanced Aquinas' fifth way from the design argument of Paley and other modern writers, sometimes in harsh terms. Now, Leibniz's rationalist approach to natural theology, to consider the other, what I identified earlier as the other main modern alternative approach to natural, arguing from the world to God, that kind of natural theology. Leibniz's rationalist approach to natural theology is less problematic in terms of its theological content, but it is nevertheless problematic methodologically, for the notions of contingency and necessity are, in rationalist cosmological arguments, no longer grounded, as they are in the Aristotelian scholastic tradition, in the natures of things. In particular, contingency is no longer grounded in the real composition of actuality and potentiality and of essence and existence in contingent things, and necessity is no longer grounded in the pure actuality and identity of essence and existence in God. It's not grounded in something objective and mind independent. Instead, a thing's contingency is reduced to, say, the logical possibility of its non-existence. And necessity is reduced to logical necessity. A, quote, principle of sufficient reason, unquote, is deployed, as Leibniz understands this, is deployed in place of the Aristotelian principle of causality that features in arguments like the five ways. Whereas the principle of causality that is to say, the principle that whatever is contingent has a cause and that nothing that changes can change itself or more generally that no potency can actualize itself. Whereas that principle is grounded in the objective impossibility of a mere potentiality actualizing itself, Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason is put forward instead as a would-be law of thought, something about our explanatory practices, not about objective reality. No longer grounded in aspects of, in aspects of the natural world itself, the rationalist cosmological argument thus comes to seem little more than a demand that the world meet certain explanatory criteria which may or may not be built into the structure of the human mind, <coughs> but which do not necessarily reflect <coughs> any aspect of objective, extramental reality. And the door is thereby open to the refutations of Hume and Kant, who famously said, well, this is just a, okay, there must be an explanation for why anything exists at all. Well, that's a demand that the world meets certain explanatory criteria we bring to bear on it, but what does that have to do with objective reality? <coughs> well, that sort of, you're open your, yourself to that sort of objection when you no longer ground the principle of sufficient reason uh, <coughs> and contingency and necessity in the real natures of things, but instead in laws of thought and this kind of stuff. <coughs> now, what of the contemporary Kalam cosmological argument, which in some versions appeals to evidence derived from modern cosmology? Doesn't it show that natural theology of a classical theistic sort can be grounded in natural science rather than the philosophy of nature, an Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature in particular. Wait for it. Sorry. No, it does not. 
For to get from the world to the God of classical theism, it is not enough to get from the world to a cause of the world. One must get to a cause that has the attributes distinctive of the God of classical theism, such as simplicity, immutability, and eternity. And one must get to a God who is not only the temporal cause of the world, but a God apart from whose sustaining causal activity the world could not exist even for an instant. And I submit that neither condition can be met without recourse to the distinction between actuality and potentiality that is at the core of the Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature. The reasons are implicit in what was said earlier. Unless the world is a mixture of potentiality and actuality, it cannot be dependent for its continued existence on something outside it. And unless God is pure actuality, he cannot be simple, immutable, or eternal. Making sense of those doctrines, I argue, always brings us back to something like the act potency distinction. To be sure, this is not to deny, I'm not denying that considerations from modern cosmology or from other natural sciences, for that matter, can be useful to the natural theologian. The Kalam cosmological argument, I concede, shows that much. But I maintain that such considerations can never be sufficient and that recourse to the philosophy of nature is necessary to get uh, from the world to specifically the god of classical theism. Now, <clears throat> suppose I'm correct to maintain that natural theology needs to be grounded in the Aristotelian scholastic philosophy of nature specifically. Is a revival of anything close to this philosophy of nature realistic or even possible at this point in the history of philosophy? Not only is it possible, it is actual. Recent decades have seen within mainstream academic philosophy a renewed interest in traditional Aristotelian metaphysical notions like substance, essence, causal power, act versus potency, these days referred to as the distinction between categorical and dispositional properties, and finality, these days referred to as, quote, physical intentionality, unquote, or the, quote, directedness of dispositions toward their manifestations. Different jargon, sub substantively the same. Moreover, this revival has taken place among secular metaphysicians and philosophers of science with no Thomistic or theological acts to grind. Among metaphysicians, the revival has largely been motivated by dissatisfaction with the standard modern philosophical accounts of causation, which take Hume as their point of departure. For example, regularity theories of causation hold that for A to cause B is just for A, this is my paper, for A and B to be instances of a general pattern according to which events like A are succeeded by events like B. Counterfactual theories of causation hold that the claim that A caused B is to be analyzed as the claim that had A not occurred, B would not have occurred either. Various technical objections have been raised against such accounts, but for those attracted to a neo-Aristotelian approach to causation, the fundamental difficulty is that these theories do not capture causation itself, but only phenomena that presuppose causation. That is to say, to the extent that the regularities in question hold, and to the extent that the counterfactuals in question are true, that is only because they are grounded in the causal powers of things. They don't explain causation, but presuppose causation. Uh, now, in, this, uh, in the work of these contemporary uh, analytic metaphysicians, the term disposition is sometimes preferred to power, but some of the theorists in question go on to argue that we can only make sense of these powers or dispositions if we think of them as pointing to or being directed at uh, their characteristic manifestations or effects. Uh, for example, the late George Molnar in his book Powers, uh, a metaphysical study, a study in metaphysics, characterizes this as, quote, physical intentionality, unquote, since it is like the intentionality of mental states in that it involves directedness onto an object that may or may not exist, but unlike it in being, unco in being unconscious. That's just Aristotelian scholastic final causality, the basic 
level of causation. Uh, contemporary metaphysician John Heil calls it natural intentionality for similar reasons. Um, that's from his book, uh, From an Ontological Point of View. Whatever the label, in substance is a return to something like the scholastic view that efficient causality presupposes final causality, and the similarity has not gone unnoticed by historians of philosophy. If you look at a book like Walter Ott's recent book, Causation and Laws of Nature in Early Modern Philosophy, very interesting book, he points out how uh, the scholastic ideas that a lot of the early moderns, guys like uh, Descartes, Locke, were responding to, have uh, been more or less resurrected in work uh, by uh, writers of the sort that I've been alluding to in contemporary analytic philosophy, totally outside the circle of Thomists. Within the philosophy of science, a movement toward neo-Aristotelianism has been motivated by dissatisfaction with the idea that scientific explanation is a matter of discovering, quote, laws of nature. As Nancy, uh, Nancy Cartwright has emphasized, she was uh, referred to earlier today, a serious problem with the Humean notion that science is in the business of establishing regularities on the basis of observation is that the sorts of regularities that the hard sciences tend to uncover are rarely observed, and in fact are in ordinary circumstances impossible to observe. Beginning students of physics quickly become acquainted with idealizations like the notion of a frictionless surface <coughs> and with the fact that laws like Newton's law of gravitation, strictly speaking, describe the behavior of bodies only in circumstances where no interfering forces are acting on them a circumstance which never actually holds. Moreover, physicists, Cartwright argues, do not in fact embrace irregularity as a law of nature only after many trials, after the fashion of popular presentations of inductive reasoning. Instead, they draw their conclusions from a few highly specialized experiments conducted under artificial conditions. None of this, Cartwright argues, is consistent with the idea that science is concerned with cataloging observed regularities, but it is consistent, in her view, with the Aristotelian picture of science as in the business of uncovering the hidden natures of things, the substantial forms of things, as the uh, scholastic would say. Experimental practice indicates that what physicists are really looking for are the inherent powers that a thing will manifest when interfering conditions are removed. And the fact that a few experiments or even a single controlled experiment are taken to establish the results in question indicates, Cartwright argues, that these powers are taken to reflect a nature that is universal to things of that type. The notion of regularities or laws of nature is therefore misleading in Cartwright's view, given that science actually uncovers few laws or regularities outside highly artificial conditions. Strictly speaking, what science discovers are the universal natures and inherent powers of things, and talk of laws of nature can only be shorthand for this. As Cartwright concludes, quote, the empiricists of the scientific revolution wanted to oust Aristotle entirely from the new learning, but they did no such thing, unquote. <coughs> and again, she's, not, she's got no theological axe to grind, no Thomistic axe to grind. To conclude then, while references to substantial form, final causes, and other traditional scholastic concepts do not exactly pepper the contemporary academic philosophy journals, uh, the substance of these ideas is getting a renewed hearing in at least some influential quarters. There has also been renewed interest in aspects of Aristotelian metaphysics other than those which have been our, our central concern here. Uh, then there are those contemporary analytic philosophers who have shown sympathy toward a specifically Aristotelian uh, Thomistic approach to metaphysics. I have in mind analytical Thomism, this movement within analytic philosophy. If renewed interest in Aristotelian scholastic natural theology waits upon renewed interest in its Aristotelian metaphysical underpinnings then, it will not have to wait as long as many might suppose. Indeed, the latter revival is already underway. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com.
be transformed by the renewal of your mind.